Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Great Britain is one of only five nations that has competed at every summer and winter Olympics since the start in 1896. That love affair with the world's greatest show continues 130 years later, with Team GB topping the most popular sports team survey by YouGov recently. Lionesses were second, Para-GB third, England men's football team fourth. Just how we like it at anything but footy. I'm John. And I'm Michael, and this is Great British Bosses, where we speak to the men and the women working and leading behind the scenes of sport in this country. The British Olympic Association was formed in 1905. It selects Team GB from the best athletes in Great Britain and Northern Ireland to compete at the Olympics. And it's the job of our guest in this episode, and we go back a long way, I have to say, to help tell their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Field. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications at Team GB. I think I've got the best job in the country. (laughs) Um, We will explain your relationship between you and Michael as the uh, podcast uh, continues. But you say it's the best job. It must be the toughest job, though, as well, for those 14, 15, 16 days every couple of years. I don't know about the toughest job. It's certainly intense for those 17 days every couple of years. And you've experienced it as journalist at the Games. And I think for context, for anyone who's listening... There are 22,000 members of the media at the Olympic Games accredited. There are 11,000 athletes, so they're outnumbered by two to one by media. You know, all of the world's media are there. Remember, there are 206 competing nations. This isn't a, you know, an individual World Cup where there's 32 teams or, or, or something of that of that nature. You know, this is the whole world coming together. The Olympic village itself is sort of the equivalent of dropping a town inside a city for those 17 days. And and all the world stories happen during that period. So it's incredibly intense. It's a great privilege. There's no doubt about that. Um, And I know, you know, there there are people that do some very tough jobs out there. So I think you're right. You know, it's not the toughest, but it's certainly it's certainly we're in the thick of it for that period. You know, there's a lot to get stuck into. And the brand, Team GB, we mentioned in our intro. I mean, did you come up with it? I didn't come up with it at all, no. <laughs> I can't lay, lay, lay credit for that. But um, I think, you know, Team GB came back in the 90s, incredibly fortunate to inherit. Um, and and you know, odd, isn't it, when we're talking on a sports podcast about a brand, you know, it's the team ultimately, because the athletes, in my mind, are the brand and they make up the team. And they're the ones that put our best foot forward every two years. 
you know, when we when we hit the field of play. Um, but I'm incredibly fortunate to inherit um, the brand, if you want to call it that, the team in such great shape and, you know, in such a great trajectory, over 60 medals for each of the last three Summer Olympic Games and for two of the last three Winter Olympic Games, you know, record and medal returns, albeit more modest in that sense as well. So, you know, it's a good time to be a Team GB for sure. I should probably know the answer to this question, but what is Team GB then? Because you're not funding the sports through the Olympic or the Paralympic cycle. You're not looking after the athletes day to day when they're going off to their individual world or European championships. So, so what are you? I mean, it's interesting you reference the deep history of, of Britain going to the Olympic Games back to 1896. Ultimately, we're there to take you know Olympic athletes to the Olympic Games. That's that's what the Olympic Charter demands of us. You know, we're a member body of the International Olympic Committee. We, the body responsible in our territory for taking athletes to the Olympic Games and for upholding the Olympic movement in this in this country. That's what we're there to do. And so for anyone who's eligible um, to qualify for the Olympic Games, we're the body that they would look to responsible for taking them to the Games. And, and that means, you know, we, we have a responsibility towards the system. And that's funded by UK Sport and the governing bodies who are doing great work out there every day, you know, training, conditioning the athletes, but also in some cases, just individual athletes who may be unfunded, who are obviously working within their governing body system, but but striving to qualify for the Olympics. Um, and, and in that sense, you know, we're not discriminatory against anybody. If you're good enough to qualify for the Olympic Games, you meet that criteria, then we're going to we're going to put you on the train, as is the case going to Paris. We're going to put you in the kit and we're going to get you to the start line at the Olympics. And that's the obligation we fulfil for the athletes. I think one of the bits people don't know is we're 100% commercially funded. So we're also, you know, a commercial organisation. So we're out there looking for sponsorships, um, for partnerships through through the term. And, and that's the important element that, that helps us fund athletes going to the Olympic Games and we take, you know, fairly healthy numbers of athletes to a Games, upwards of 370 for each of the last um, the last three Olympic cycles and we'll probably be the same for Paris. And do you find that because you're Team GB and because you've got that popularity that we referenced right at the start, that when you are pushing at those commercial doors, trying to get into those boardrooms, it's perhaps a little bit easier than if you were, say, a national governing body? I'm not responsible for the, the the commercial element per se. We have a commercial team team that do that. I think the commercial market's always very difficult wherever you are. It is about um, demonstrating there's a purpose as well beyond the pure sponsorship play, if you like. And I think that's the interesting proposition with Team GB. You know, we're not necessarily um, you know a brand that you can just slap a logo on, uh, or a team, sorry, that you can just slap a logo on the shirt of and. You know, we don't have our own venue. We don't run events every every two weeks, as you would see in football. What we do do is we, I think we we work with our athletes to tell the story of Olympism and what it means to be an Olympic athlete very, very well. And, you know, hopefully increasingly well. And I think that's what our partners look to us for is, you know, real purpose and actually aligning themselves to the value of Team GB, the values of Team GB, I should say, and the values that our athletes demonstrate on a day-to-day basis. You know, we have some incredible backstories. Um, we see some incredible 
feats and efforts going from the athletes every four-year cycle to get themselves to an Olympic Games. And I think, you know, the nation always recognises the great efforts uh, and endeavour that sort of goes into um, to becoming an Olympian and, and delivering on the great stage. And I think, you know, the nation enjoys that, enjoys watching the Olympics in the moment, enjoys seeing those backstories. I think our partners enjoy that. I think they enjoy knowing that they're supporting these individuals in their personal efforts and achievements. Um, and, and I think for that reason, you know, people um, people are warm to Team GB and our, and our partners are warm to Team GB. And we're incredibly grateful to them because without them, we couldn't, we couldn't carry these stories forward. We couldn't take the athletes to the Olympic Games and we couldn't, you know, create the amazing memories that I think we have, certainly in recent history, at Olympic Games. You mentioned about telling stories, Scott. Is it easy to tell the story of Team GB and the Olympics? And the reason why I say that is this quote that kind of leaps out of me, that people love the Olympics, but they hate the IOC. But actually, your job is telling the good stories of Team GB. Telling stories across the Olympic landscape is, you know, has resonance. Uh, you know, you see stories from all parts of the world. And to credit the IOC, they create the platform for these stories to be told. Um, and, you know, you see some incredibly uh, enriching stories from athletes all over the globe who come from a variety of different circumstances to make it to the Olympic Games. You know, we have the refugee team at the Olympic Games now, which is which is something the IOC have worked hard to create and I think they deserve credit for because that's giving opportunity to athletes that otherwise wouldn't have them and they're great stories that we get to see told. I think from our point of view, the whole heritage of, of Team GB and the Olympics is built on athlete stories and, and, and so it's incumbent on us to continue to tell those stories as, as well as we possibly can. I don't think it's easy to tell those stories. I think sometimes the challenge is helping athletes and individuals know that their story is of value and is of interest to the public because they're quite humble. You know, you, you've spoken to many of these athletes. They're really humble. They don't necessarily see themselves as, as someone with a story. And for me, they all have a story, whether that's just simply grounding them in their local communities. You know, there's nothing that gives the nation more pride than knowing an athlete is a great success and they come from the same place that you do. Yeah, we always we always talk about the goalpost boxes from London. It's almost inevitable that we do, but you know the sort of sense of community pride that that created is memorable in itself, right? And I think that for me is the essence of of what we're trying to do. We're just linking back these incredibly talented individuals to their communities and and exploring the full diversity and depth of that because there are athletes from all four parts of the nation, and we are one of the few you know, the few entities that, that represents the whole of the UK. Um, it allows athletes to be grounded back in their communities uh, in any which way you want to define, define community. That might be their sporting community, it might be their location, it might be any any other community group they identify with. There's something for everyone in Team GB. You mentioned a couple of um, moments ago about the talent that's there. And I wondered whether it makes your life easier. I think Team GB revealed at the end of last year that Nora Kenny is looking to go back to the Olympics in Paris uh, this summer. Does it help having that history and people continuing? So the likes of Tom Daly, Laura Kenny, Max Whitlock, or actually is it more exciting with the people that we probably at this point know lesser of? 
I think it's a mix of both, ultimately. I think the two things the British public love, or any public perhaps, love uh, most is, is knowing that the, the known quantities are back and they can, you know, get excited about someone they know is at the very, very peak of their powers, the top of their game, is going to perform and, and you know, is likely to succeed, whoever that might be. But we also love the great unknown, don't we? You know, who's next? Everyone wants to know who's next. Who's going to be the person that, you know, comes off the track having made a name for themselves? I always think of Tom Dean in Tokyo as being one of those was those individuals that, you know, a lot of people walking the street probably wouldn't have known of and yet comes out of the pool with a handful of medals and, and some gold in that as well, which is incredible and, and you know, is all of a sudden sort of shocking for the nation's consciousness. And I think there's a balance to it all. You know, it's great seeing the, 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 the names that we know come back to build anticipation, but we also love, we also love the unknown and, and, and the underdog as well for that fact, you know. Um, I remember the hockey team, you know, going into Rio, perhaps weren't at the top of everyone's list to to win a win a gold medal, and 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 brilliantly fought their way through to the final and sort of stopped the clocks, didn't they? I mean, literally stopped the news actually for the evening that they won the gold medal and and you know captured the captured the nation's attention and and, and our hearts for a night and it was fantastic. Here we are then. It's Olympic year, twenty twenty four, and this. Is your well, you were involved in 2012. I remember dealing with you there as the, the press officer for the Team GB football teams, but 2016 and then delayed games of 2021. You kind of came into the role late ish, that fair to say, uh, ahead of sort of 2016, and then obviously all the challenges of Tokyo in 2021. Is this the first time that you've ever had the chance to really put your mark on your team, a proper games that you've been able to build since sort of day one, if that makes sense? Well, I had the two winter games as well, Michael. Let's not forget in 2018 in Pyeongchang and in Beijing in, of course. in 2022. So yeah. I probably felt like I had more of a chance to put my mark on on, on those. Um, yeah, I came quite late in before Rio, but I think the beauty of working at, at TGB and the BOA is it's, um, it's a very focused organisation. You know, it's focused on the athletes. It's focused on creating the platform for them to deliver at the Olympic Games. So what I did find when I walked in, in in early 2016 ahead of those Rio Games was that it's in a great state. You know, like everything's pretty much ready to go. And, you know, the, the extent to which we prepare ahead of a Games means that as we sit here now, there's, I wouldn't say there's as much focus, but certainly there's, there's a decent focus on what we're doing for LA as much as there is how we're going to deliver Paris. You know, we work some five, six years ahead of the Olympic Games. So when I came in ahead of Rio, to cut a long story short, it was in great shape. We were ready to go, really. So I, um, you know, I was able to, to sort of slot in, um, work my way through what it was about, learn about the organisation, learn about the sports, create those relationships, which are ultimately key to everything we do. Um, and Rio was a tricky game for everyone. You know, the, the infrastructure was was difficult to work around, but it was a really enjoyable games. And what I found was pretty much what I said there, an organisation in, in really good shape, ready to go. And my gosh, we delivered, right? I mean, 67 medals in Rio um, tells its own story. The first team ever to better their medal return um, at a, an away games, if I can put it that way, following the home games in London. So, you know, history in itself 
So, you know, it, and, and then it was great to roll on to Tokyo to feel like you could you could sort of own that from start to finish. The Olympic world is very cyclical. Sport's very cyclical, isn't it? You know, based on the sort of rhythm and cadence of the fixtures. The Olympics is certainly cyclical for obvious reasons. And actually to work through the Tokyo cycle was was great, really enjoyable. Similarly, to work through this Paris cycle, really, really enjoyable. You feel, you know, I think there's a great sense of fulfilment in knowing that you've been working on something from the very outset to, you know, to, to ending at the Games. I always knew you as a football man and as a speedway man, actually. And as I said right at the start, I've known you quite a long time. When did you have your eye on the Olympics and Team GB? How did that come about? I continue to lobby for Speedway to be an Olympic sport at some point in the future. Um, that's one for another podcast. But I actually had my introduction to the Olympic world through football. I've been in football for 16 years. Um, I worked at two clubs, West Bromwich Albion, and you might tell the link um, to West Brom from the accent. And then I worked at Watford. You definitely won't tell the link to the accent from that. And then I joined the FA and I was at the FA for seven years, um, heading up comms um, uh, alongside colleagues there. So a long stint in professional football. Um, and actually, it was whilst I was at the FA that I got introduced to Team GB and the BOA, because you'll remember during London 2012, um, we had football as part of the Olympic programme, uh, both men's and women's. And I, from a comms and media point of view, supported the development of the introduction of the teams into the programme, then the development of the teams that went to go and play, so the hiring of the coaches, the nominations of the coaches, the nominations of the players, and ultimately then went to the Olympic Games in 2012 as part of um, the FA's delegation that was submitted to Team GB to deliver the football teams at the Games. So worked on media and comms with the men's team, with, with a colleague, but predominantly worked to work with the women's team a little more so um, during that period. Um, and, it, you know, with great fondness, I look back at London 2012 and and um, how amazing it was in all respects and how privileged I was to be able to work at the Games, wearing the Team GB kit and working alongside the, the, the men's and women's football teams at the time. And we've seen the huge success of the women's team really from that point on, just going an upward trajectory. What about the men, though? Will we ever see a great Britain football men's team again? Uh, I don't know. Don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. It's quite a, quite a complex, um, a complex question. I think um, men's football at the Olympics is an under twenty three competition, so it's very different in terms of its um, how it's composed to the women's competition, which is a full um, full international competition as deemed by FIFA. Everyone could see through the uh, the sort of optics of of the importance of the Olympics to women's football and its development. And I think that's perhaps different to where the men's game is at and the view of it in this country. I'd love to think we would have a men's team alongside a women's team again in the future because I think our remit at the BOA is to be able to fulfil our obligation to take athletes to the Olympic Games in all competitions. So, you know, where where the opportunity arises, um, you know, it would be great to think that could happen again in future. I think for the time being, though, I'm conscious I'm on a podcast that's called Anything But Footy, so I can't keep witching on about football to the detriment of all our other sports for too much longer. 
And and you're right. I mean, maybe Michael and I are partly to blame for this, but there is this issue in this country where football is not seen as an Olympic sport. There's a gold medal, there's a silver medal, there's a bronze medal. There's there's medals up for grabs. Neymar wanted to win it for Brazil. Mbappe wants to win it for France. Yeah, and I went to the um, I went to the the Brazil Germany final for the men's football in um, in Rio. And you try telling anyone in that stadium that it didn't matter. And it wasn't it wasn't the big Olympic sport because the gold medal for Brazil in football on that night was the be all and end all, I, I think, for them in that moment. Uh, and Neymar was there, as you, as you rightly said, scored the winning penalty, I think, uh, as I recall. All sports are, you know, equal in our in our eyes, and you know, people would have the same debate around a lot of the, as people might term it, the traditionally professionalised sports, whether that's golf or tennis or rugby to an extent, albeit it's rugby sevens play or cricket to come, or cricket to come, right? I mean, you know, it's sport, it's sport of the highest quality, and I think they all have their they all have their place. This is anything but footy. You're listening to Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy. And we're in conversation with Scott Field, Director of Marketing and Communications at Team GP. What are you looking forward to going to see in Paris? I mean, if you look at this 17 days of competition and you think professionally, there's certain things that you probably have to attend. But as a fan, what would you like to go and see? It's a, it's a divisive question, but a great question. The corporate answer is everything, of course. The personal answer is, I mean, look, I, I love seeing sports I haven't seen before. I'm really looking forward to seeing breaking. I think it'll be brilliant, particularly in the environment that they're going to create in Paris. I love the combat sports. I think, you know, what's better than watching Bianca walk and kick someone in the head? It's, you know, it's like, it's, it's super. The boxing is, is always good. Um, the one, I mean, this is very personal, but I've I've been fortunate enough to watch Matt Whitlock win his two gold medals in Rio and Tokyo, particularly fortunate in Tokyo, given that I was perhaps what one of about a couple of hundred people in the arena to watch him win that gold medal. You know, if Max is back on that pommel horse at Paris, I want to see Max Whitlock go for the go for the hat trick. And that's not to put any pressure on him, but you know, I, I really would love to see that. It would be an incredible thing. Um, I, you know, I very much look forward to watching the gymnastics at every game. I think the feats of strength and um, coordination are just just unbelievable. In fact, seeing Simone Biles back would be something else. I saw Simone Biles as well in, in Tokyo. I want to get to the pool. I want to see, you know, our divers as well in particular. I think we've got some great talent there. Uh, and the diving arena is the only new arena, actually, as I as I know it in Paris, that's being built specifically for the games. And I think it looks super. So I'm going to get myself across there, hopefully, and have a look at that. And when I look at your career path from West Brom to Watford, the Football Association, the British Olympic Association, I'm astounded because you're the guy that got sacked on work experience, Scott. Did I get sacked? I don't know. I always say I got sacked. I did work experience with um, with Michael for, for those who... Uh, you weren't on work experience. You were actually working there. But I didn't 11 work grand a year. Yeah. Felt like work experience. Yeah. <laughs> under the tutelage of Michael. It was a fairly combustible environment, wasn't it, Michael? I think it was... Old school. So... Yeah, old school journalism. So there were there were the odd days where um, things didn't didn't go well. You perhaps weren't welcome back, even as work experience. The following day, I did come back though, and always 
On we went. We should probably explain that um, what we're talking about is a time in our lives in the mid to late 90s at the Birmingham Post and Mail. And they had a small TV outlet at the time, uh, live TV, which was famous in London for some bizarre programmes like Topless Darts and its spin-off Topless Darts in Space. But we were running a serious news and sport operation in Birmingham and that's where Scott and I first met each other. Was broadcasting something you you wanted to do at that point or did you always think that you would end up in in the kind of roles that you did in your career all i want i, I just wanted to be you michael i wanted to be you i wanted to be <laughs> and uh, no all i wanted to do was broadcast all i wanted to do was radio actually radio is my my first love all i wanted to do was broadcast and um i started out in bbc local radio fortunate enough to cover my favorite sports speedway football tennis cricket you know a broad range of sports um, all useful for what I'm doing now in many respects. Um, yeah, I just wanted to I just wanted to cover sport. I wanted to to be on the radio doing that. You know, I still listen to the great commentators today, particularly the great football commentators, people like Ian Dennis and, and John Murray. Um, and I just think, oh gosh, you know, that was what I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to do when I was younger. And um and I got to do it, right? It was brilliant. I got to do it. I got to commentate on hundreds of football matches and work on radio, moved into TV. Um, it's kind of a natural transition sometimes to move into PR and then media relations. Uh, and that's the, that's the road I sort of found myself on, really. Um, and I've enjoyed it. It's great. You know, I've been able to learn a great deal, develop along the way. And, and what I love, even now in the Olympic environment, is still learning every day. And, you know, I talked about it earlier, but I love the breadth of sports. I love the privilege of being able to you know, learn about new sports and get that deeper understanding about new sports. I remember one of the, the great things I did very early on in my time at the BO is I was invited to the Redgrave Pins at Rowing Lake um, to watch our rowers in prep for Rio. And I went into one of their ergo testing sessions, which is one of the most incredible things I've seen in sport, you know, athletes taking themselves to the very the ends of, of, of what they can achieve. Um, for this sort of very black and white measure that comes off the the row machine that tells them whether they've achieved their goal for the day or not, and you know they're tested to within in, within an inch of their lives really um, to to work out who's going to get in the boat, you know, for for the Rio Games. Just being in the room to witness this test, you know, 12, 10 and twelve athletes on the row machines just just going at it, you know, competing against each other you know, in the knowledge that they're going to get in the boat with each other and for each other. Um, and just seeing the effort and the, um, just how spent they were at the end of it, it was just one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It was such a privilege to see. Two more questions for me. Um, you mentioned about working in football and you mentioned there about the, what an amazing feeling the Olympics gives you. Could the Olympics learn from football or could actually football learn from the Olympics about how to tell stories? I feel, I find that football is so restrictive now and so narrow in how it tells stories. I would never be, I'm never critical of, of football at all. I think one of the difficulties football has is, um, you know, we're at, we're at saturation point, right? I mean, how many times can you tell the story of, and it sounds like I'm picking on someone, but I'll just throw a name at that, Harry Kane, right? I mean, you know, how how many hours can you possibly pour over the story of keep finding something new or fresh to talk about? And 
Um, yeah, it's probably unfair of me to use a name there. Harry Kane is actually someone I, I would sit and listen to and 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 you know and want to understand more of. But I think you understand the point I'm making. Is the stories the stories are just told over and over and over. There's a freshness to the Olympic stories which I like. I think though the Olympics can learn a lot from football. It does, you know, it does things incredibly well. You see sort of the social content that clubs put out that the, the nations put out and it's really really strong and we can learn a lot from it i love some of the you know some of the stuff we've seen you know i mean jack Grealish has been brought to life right through some great storytelling around him and um some of the stuff the city have done and some of the most emotive content i've seen in the last couple of years has probably been around jack Grealish, which is you know usually anathema for a west brom fan to be talking about jack Grealish in such exalted terms given his history with Aston Villa but you know but yeah we can all learn from each other right I think we're all testing testing this stuff we're all testing our our, our content with different audiences on different platforms the whole of the time and it goes in many many different directions and what's right for someone could be a 30 second clip on TikTok what's right for the rest of us could be an hour-long documentary on Netflix so you know we all we all have different ways to consume we all have different individuals that we we like I think football can learn a lot from Olympic storytelling and Olympic storytelling can learn a lot from from football storytelling. And you mentioned earlier about how much you have to plan ahead. And we're obviously incredibly excited about Paris, which is coming up. But how's Milano Cortina getting on? Because I understand like the bobsleigh that's not even going to be held in Italy. You know, the Winter Games is is a fascinating challenge in itself because um, the nature of the sport and the venues mean that you sort of not, you, you can't contain it. In the way that I mean, say the Olympic Summer Games is contained. It's not when you've got sailing in Marseille, right, and uh, and, uh, and other sports around the city. surfing in Tahiti. Yeah, well, surfing in Tahiti. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, getting from the mountain cluster to the city cluster, you know, in in conditions that aren't you know aren't conducive to easy travel necessarily um you know it does make it a challenge it's a great challenge i love the winter games absolutely adore going to the winter games there's a there's a completely different feel and vibe to it i think the athletes are different i mean that could be said of any sport actually the athletes are different whichever sport you you um you engage with the winters definitely has a different feel to it i think milan cortina again we're in we're in good shape you know we we know um the lie of the land we know um how the team's building out it's great that we we're in the midst of a winter season now because you get to see you know who's performing well who's building um who's building in their own right towards milan cortina you know again it's a game for us on a european time zone which very selfishly as team gb can only be beneficial for us up until paris i won't have worked on um and Olympic Games in our time zone since London 2012. So that's a challenge in itself. So we're really looking forward to going to, to Italy for Milan Cortina. It's going to be great. There are clearly some, some details to work through. Um, it's not unusual in our world necessarily. I think they'll deliver a great games. So as Director of Marketing and Communications, you must get some weird and wonderful kind of phone calls and requests during games time. Can you, can you share any odd moments where you maybe had to put your head in your hands or you've had to roll your eyes at your colleagues once or twice Scott oh I don't know that's a great that's a good question that um I mean you know for some reason it's a serious people... job sometimes I guess there's crisis to manage you know if there's yeah, a drug a story or something security I mean, story but there must be some fun bits 
there are light moments. There are really light moments. I remember us having um, a bit of fun with uh, colleagues from The Sun, actually, The Sun newspaper during Rio, where there was, um, you know, there was a there was a bit of a bit of chat around, you know, whether we too closely, you know, kept to all our secrets too closely guarded around the type of equipment we were going to use at the games and, you know, at the velodrome and the types of bikes or the aerodynamic helmets they'd use and stuff. And we had a bit of fun where we talked about, you know, we kept our, kept we guarded our secrets as closely as Mary Berry guarded her recipe secrets and stuff because we were in, I think Bake Off was on at the time or something as well. So we ended up making the front page with some Mary Berry uh, sort of anecdotes appended to us, which was slightly odd. But, you know, we have some fun along the way and, and try and make it as, as fun. It's sport, right? We try and make it as fun as we can, where we can. You are right that, um, you know, there are plenty serious moments along the way as well because, you know, clearly, you know, people put a lot of effort and, 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 and livelihoods depend on, you know, them going well at the Olympics, people are people are working towards this goal. It's big for them as athletes. It's, it is important for the country and we do want to represent ourselves properly. But there, there are plenty of times where we can have a bit of fun and sort of kick back. I always find it bizarre when people want to interview me, funnily enough, guys. But, you know, here we are <laughs> talking to you. Um, and that does happen during the games as well. I try and avoid it as much as, as, much as possible. Um, and what, you know, one of the things I do love is just I love seeing the athletes celebrate after the games. I think they deserve their moment. I think they deserve their opportunity to celebrate. And um, I always find that quite fun because they do tend to cut loose and enjoy themselves. So it should be. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you. And uh, we appreciate your time. Scott Field, Director of Marketing and Communications at Team GB. Thank you for speaking to great British bosses from anything but footy. Thank you. Podcast Network.